0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, we're looking at verses 1 through 8 as we continue our series of studies in the Psalms of Ascent. Pilgrim Psalms. Today, looking at Psalm 130. Hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths... My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Father, your word is food for our souls. And we pray that you would feed us on this word that is before us today. We pray, Father, that it would encourage and that it would equip and strengthen and encourage and convict and do all of those things, Lord, that you see fit to do in our hearts by your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A Sunday school teacher had just concluded her lesson and wanted to make sure uh, that she had conveyed her point to her children that she was teaching. And she said to them, can anyone tell me what you must do before you can receive forgiveness for your sins? And there was a pause, and then finally from the back of the room, a small voice spoke up. Sin, he said. Well, he has a point. Uh, we do have to have sin to be forgiven. However, uh, we're, we're pretty good on that point. Uh, and we're also not to go out and sin just to give God something to do where we're concerned. I think that would violate Paul's teaching in Romans chapter six, where he says that, uh, we are not to go on sinning simply that grace might increase. The reality is, of course, that we have sinned, and we do sin, and we will sin, despite our best intentions, despite our strongest efforts, even because we're fallen, despite God's grace available to us and at work in us. We sin, and then what? What happens after we sin? Well, we feel Guilty. We feel guilt. Now, as you look at the scriptures and especially the Psalms and think of Psalms that deal with sin and with forgiveness. If you know the Psalms well, there are probably two that come to mind. We think think maybe of Psalm 32 uh, and Psalm 51. Uh, both Psalms of David both describe the experience of being weighed down by the guilt of sin, uh, but also the joy of forgiveness and that weight being lifted. And so those two psalms, uh, understandably, probably would come to mind first. Uh, And yet, while Psalm 130 is lesser known than those two longer psalms, it is no less powerful than those two psalms in addressing the subject of our sin and our forgiveness. Psalm 130 pulls us out of the pit, uh, the pit of an aching conscience, the pit of despair or temptation to despair over our sin and our guilt. And it gives us hope because this message is very simple. God's redemption of his people in Christ is an abundant redemption. It is an abundant redemption. It's no small, meager thing, just barely adequate, if that, to the task. We need to recognize that what God has done for us in Christ is to provide us with an abundant, overflowing, all-encompassing redemption. Now, as we look at this psalm, you'll see that it progresses through four levels of experience. In fact, the uh, the the way it's printed even in the ESV and perhaps other translations reflects that as there's a space between each two verses, the first two, second two, third couplet, and finally verses seven and eight. And they hint at these levels of experience that he passes through, but they're not, not unique to the writer of this psalm. Uh, If you are a believer, I suggest, you probably have experienced all of them in in one level or another. And even if you're not a Christian, you've experienced perhaps some of this. So let's look then at these levels of experience that he passes through, that he describes. And the first level, where we start out, is a dark one. And it is the level of despair, or near despair. Uh, Perhaps the level, you could call it a deep despair conviction or deep consternation over sin. Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And you'll notice there the small caps the first time he says, O Lord. And then in verse 2, O Lord is in uh, regular print. The first time is the use of the name Yahweh, that covenant name of God that the Lord gave to Moses. And then the second is Adonai, or Lord, or Master. And so both occur, and the the typography indicates that to us in uh, most of our English translations. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. These are not the words of somebody who's just replaying a conversation, perhaps, in his mind, and is a little disturbed, maybe a little bothered over what he did. Rather, this is someone who is is crushed and weighed down under the weight of deep conviction of sin. Someone who can describe himself as crying out from the depths. Now, if you're looking at those verses, you may think, well, why sin? Maybe he's just in a very difficult situation and he needs the help He needs the rescue of the Lord. Why sin? Well, true, he doesn't mention sin in verses one and two, but he does in verses three and four. Quite specifically Uh, toward the center of the psalm, that really seems to be what his problem is. It's a sin problem. It is a guilt problem that he's struggling with here. Now, unlike Psalms 32 and 51, we don't know what the specific sin is. In those two psalms we do because we have the historic record, the historical record of King David and his his adultery and his murder in an effort to cover up the adultery and all that went wrong with his kingdom afterwards. We we read that in the scriptures. And so that colors our reading of Psalm thirty two, Psalm fifty one. And while we can pray those Psalms as our own prayer and should as prayers of confession, confessing our sins and asking God's forgiveness for our transgressions. Uh, We know the background. Here we don't. We don't know what particular sin is weighing him down. And you know, it may not even be a specific sin that he has in mind. It may be a general sense of his thoroughgoing wickedness, sinfulness, rebelliousness before a holy God, not one thing in particular, although I think he, like most people, could think of any number of things that their conscience specifically smarts over, but it could just be a general sense of sin. But whichever it is, I ask you, have you ever felt that? As a Christian, particularly, have you ever felt that sting of conscience over something that you did or maybe didn't do? That you deeply regret a thing you didn't do, or that you didn't say, but should have, or that thing you should not have done, but you did anyway. Maybe you're feeling that way right now. Maybe you're experiencing this first level of experience of, of a tremendous sense of guilt, of uncleanness, of unworthiness. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? You know, some people don't feel guilty. Some people have so hardened their hearts, so calloused their souls, seared their consciences that it seems they can do almost anything and not feel any sense of remorse or regret. I mean, almost horrific in, in a lack of response to carrying out the worst of sins, committing the worst of crimes. It's a disturbing thing. But usually, though, we, most people, feel guilty when they've done something that they know is wrong. Some struggle with a particular sin to the point they almost come up to despair, whether they can overcome it or not. Or they may actually fall into despair. Will God forgive me? Can God forgive me for doing so wicked a sin? Can God forgive me for such numerous sins? Now... Encourage you with this conviction of sin. This sense of guilt before a holy God is a terrifying thing. It's also a good thing. It's a, if you feel that it is a God-given grace to feel conviction of your sin, uh, to feel a sense of uncleanness before God, more than just remorse. Even non-Christians can feel that because we are made in the image of God. We do have the sense of the law of God written on our hearts, as Paul speaks about in Romans. But a deep sense of having offended God is a God-given grace. Something to thank God for, that he has not left your heart in, an, in a hardened, in an unfeeling condition. And that's where this writer is. Now, if you're troubled over something in your life, something you did this past week, something you did decades ago, you know how that hurts. But that pain is a good thing if we know what to do with it. psalmist knew what to do with it. He cries out to the Lord. Now, we come to that stage by God's grace. Where do we go? We can go into despair. But I suggest that's not where God intends. We may be in despair. That's not where God wants you to stay. Because we pass to the second level, along with the psalmist here, as we progress through this passage, uh, from this sense of conviction or even despair to an acknowledgement of truth. The truth. Second level is truth. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Again, the covenant name of God, and then that polite reference to God, O Lord and O Lord. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, in getting at the truth, he begins with a question. Notice what he asks. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? If God kept a record, and that's what he means, if you should mark Iniquities. And the word there is a is a very common Hebrew word, actually, uh, that has the the idea of to keep or to watch or to guard. And the idea of its use here, if you marked iniquities, in other words, if you wrote them down in your book and kept a record of them against us, who could stand? Who could stand if that were the case that's that's his question. You know, I used to have a teacher who did that. Well, I was in junior high school. I had a teacher. I think it was history. Uh, and what he would do is he had a he had a book. He had his, I guess his grade book or something. But he was known. We knew going into his class. We'd heard about the infamous black marks. And if you talked in class or acted up in class or maybe just didn't know something you should have known in class. He'd point out to say, Black Mark, he'd mark it in his book. And if you accumulated enough Black Marks, bad things would happen to you. Uh, Happy to say I didn't accumulate enough to find out, but I did have my share of them. Uh, But, you know, you messed up. Black Mark, he'd mark it in his book. God doesn't do that. Now, does God not know we've sinned? Of course he does. But in Christ, that that Black Mark book has been erased. God doesn't hold those sins against us anymore in Christ. But if he did, and he will against all who are not in Christ, if you kept a record of sins, Lord, if you marked iniquities and held them against us, measured us by it, who could stand? In other words, who would stand up under that scrutiny? Who would receive a passing grade? You know, when he asks that, it, it, it is similar in the way he uses it. Who could stand to Psalm 1, Psalm 1, verse 5? It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What does he mean? That, 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 that sinners will escape judgment? No, they won't have to stand for judgment. No, they will undergo judgment, but they won't stand up under it. They will fail. They will be crushed under the scrutiny. They will not pass. That's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying here in Psalm 130, that if the Lord holds your sins against you, and if you are not in Christ, he will. If you are in Christ, he will not because he held them against Christ. Then the question is who could stand? But notice in the affirmation. But with you, there is forgiveness. There's pardon. He erases the book. Okay, let's put it in modern terms. He deletes the file. Permanently deletes it. Shift, delete. It's gone. It's not hiding in the recycle bin where it can be dragged back out at a convenient time to use against you. It's gone. But with you there is forgiveness. And when God forgives, he forgives. Sometimes we forgive, but not like we should. Because a couple weeks later we dredge that thought back out and get angry about it all over again. When God forgives, you know the the biblical images. It's it's as far as the east is from the west. By the way, don't ever say as far as the north is from the south, because that's a finite, fixed distance from one pole to the other. East, west, there's no pole. You just keep going. It's infinite. He's cast our sins into the sea, into the deepest part of the sea. He doesn't remember them against us anymore. With you there is forgiveness. Why does he say that? What gives him that? This is the Old Testament, after all. What gives him that idea? Well, there could be any reasons that he understands that, but there's one passage in particular that makes me think he may have it in mind because it specifically refers to that. And you may be familiar with this. It's Exodus 34, uh, where Moses has prayed that the Lord would show Moses his glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord does. Now, he does it in a, in a partial way, protecting Moses from the sheer holiness of the presence of God. Kind of hides a little bit, shows him not the full disclosure of God's glory. But this is what happens. The Lord, this is Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. What does that mean? You really can only understand that in Christ. That really only makes sense in Christ. He forgives, but he won't clear the guilty. Because it's in Christ that you and I are forgiven. In Christ, bearing the guilt of our sin is judged. But in one of the most self-disclosing statements God makes, what does he speak about? Primarily his mercy and his love. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I think that's why the psalmist can affirm so confidently, with you there is forgiveness. Now notice as a result of that, therefore you are feared. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? With you, there is forgiveness, a good thing, something that brings relief. Therefore, you are loved. Therefore, you are thanked. Therefore, you are praised. Therefore, we draw near to you. All of those would make sense. But when it says, therefore, you are feared. It doesn't seem to fit together. Even if we understand stand to fear there in a, in a sense in which it's often used in Scripture, in the sense not of craven terror, but of worship, of service to the Lord. Because he forgives us, we worship him and we serve him. By the way, if you continue on in Exodus 34, after the Lord makes this disclosure, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children of the third and fourth generation, Moses' response in verse 8 is what? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. With you, there is forgiveness, therefore you are fear. You know, this verse, verse four, has a very important insight for us in living the Christian life. That insight is this: We serve God best. Fear in that general sense of worshiping and serving, following the Lord. we serve God best, not when we're afraid of His punishment. But when we are overwhelmed by his grace, we serve God best, not when we're terrified of being punished, but when we're overwhelmed by his grace, by his love, by his forgiveness of our sins. Truth. That's the truth. That's the reality. Yes, we may be convicted deeply about sin, but we turn to the scriptures and we find that with the Lord, there is forgiveness. If he kept a record, we're done for But in Christ, that record is expunged, we are forgiven, and therefore we are to fear and serve, worship, obey, the Lord. That's the truth. And that's what he goes to as he cries out to the Lord. He reminds himself of this truth. And that's what we need to do as well. Because Satan will accuse. Our consciences may not be calmed so quickly or easily. But we go back time and again to this truth. Christ has died for those sins. God's displeasure and wrath has already been poured out against those sins. And he forgives me and he loves me and he accepts me. But then that brings us to this third level. That's exactly what we're talking about now. That third level in verses five and six is trust. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Because we can know the truth and not feel the truth. We can know we are forgiven and yet not feel forgiven. You know, we may wake up in the night and our, our stomach's in knots over a memory of what we did or said or didn't do or didn't say that we feel guilt over and it seems like we're right back at square one all over again. It's not for no reason in Revelation 12 Satan is called the accuser of our brothers. Because Satan and his forces and our conscience will sometimes rise up to accuse and accuse. And so what do we do? Well, we we continue to the truth like we said But we also trust. We wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Notice what he says, verse 5. And in his word I hope. What's he waiting for? Why is he waiting? Why does he wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning? You know, in the dark of night, watching over the city, relieved to see the sun come up, the light of day, where everything is plain. You know how things are. You think about them in the middle of the night. It's dark. They seem much scarier than they do when you wake up and the sun's shining and it all seems not quite so scary as it did in the middle of the night. What what is he waiting for? Well, in the context, it seems like he's waiting for, as he says in his word, I hope, he's waiting to experience, to feel the reality of the truth that he's just confessed in verses 3 and 4. What do we do when our conscience won't be stilled? Well, we cry out to the Lord. We preach to ourselves the truth of the gospel and we trust we wait on the Lord and in his word more than watch me wait for the morning until that time when God gives us that sense of peace, that sense of forgiveness, that sense that we are his. In the meantime, we hold on to his truth because it is God's word. And that's what we stand on, not our feelings on the truth. But as we continue to return to the truth, remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, return again God's word. Feelings begin to follow. Feelings begin to fall in line. It's a principle similar to that in marriage. The way to love your husband or your wife is not to wait until you feel like doing it. It is to love them in action, to love them in word, and you'll be amazed how the feelings fall in line and how they follow. Well, the same here. We go to the truth. We return to the truth and wait for the Lord until we have that assurance do we feel the truth as well as believe the truth? And then that takes us to a fourth and final level, verses 7 through 8. And that is to tell, to give testimony to the grace of God. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the testimony of experience. He's no longer addressing the Lord. He's no longer talking about himself. He's exhorting Israel. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? Because I have been there. I have been in the depths of sin. I have embraced His truth. And in time, I experience that sense of joy inexpressible and full of glory that comes from being forgiven and knowing and feeling that forgiveness. And so he turns outward. He looks at others who may be in the same predicament and calls on them to hope in the Lord. Why does he do that? Well, he he gives this foundation for... And three things. Because this love of God is permanent. With the Lord there is steadfast love. It doesn't waver. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It is a covenanted love. It is sealed by the blood of Christ. Steadfast love. This this, this regard, this affection, this devotion to us that God has in the covenant that he made with us. This foundation is also sufficient. With him with the Lord, is plentiful redemption. Every time I think of that, it comes to me in the King James, plenteous redemption. Uh, I love that word, but plentiful is, is good too, and it says the same thing. The point, again, is that God's redemption is abundant. It's not just enough to get maybe just a select special few into heaven. It is an abundant redemption that is more than sufficient for all of those whom God calls to himself. All of those who believe in Christ. All of those who respond to the gospel. It is no mean, small, meager, barely sufficient, barely adequate thing, but overflowing for those who call on the Lord. With him is plentiful redemption. It's also comprehensive. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Read the Old Testament. Come on Sunday nights and take a look at the book of Judges. And you'll begin to comprehend what all his iniquities means. You think you've sinned a sin that's too great for God to forgive? Don't be so arrogant. Don't think so highly of yourself. Repent of your pride that you think your sin is bigger than the gospel of Christ. You think you've sinned so many times God has to give up. Just stop forgiving you. Don't be so arrogant. Don't be so proud of yourself thinking somehow that your sin and your ability or lack thereof is somehow greater than this plentiful redemption that God has accomplished in Christ. It is plentiful. It is comprehensive. All his iniquities. Do we go on sinning that grace might increase? Absolutely not. There are times when we should feel deep conviction. Over our sin. But we don't stay there. We return to the Lord. We return to his truth. We wait on him. And having experienced that grace. We exhort others to come to that same place. Where we have come. And found relief. And found life. What must you do before you can receive forgiveness for your sins? Well, sin. Sin. And we've done that. We've been there and then some. But the next thing we need to do when we are feeling the guilt of our sin, when our conscience aches, is to cry out to the Lord. To call on the one who provides for full forgiveness and full removal of those sins through the death and resurrection of Christ. We count on his truth that he has given to us in the word. That's what we need. A deep sense of conviction of sin, yes, but an even greater sense of the grace of God in Christ, the complete sufficiency of Christ to atone for our sins. Don't let a God-given sense of conviction of sin drive you to despair, except maybe only to despair of your own righteousness. Let it drive you to Calvary. Let it drive you to a blood-streaked cross in an empty tomb. Let it drive you to Christ. And then go out and tell others about that abundant redemption that you found in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. It, It indeed is good news. Father, we thank you that you have done everything necessary in Christ for us to be fully accepted by you for this life and for all eternity. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the gospel. That's not based on how we feel about ourselves from one day to the next. It's based on the perfect and finished and complete work of Christ. But, Father, as we have trusted in him, I pray that every one of us would have a deep and overwhelming sense of your love, of how much you love and accept us, of how dear we are to you, that you gave the blood of Christ, your only begotten son, for us, that you've provided for us in him all the righteousness that we will ever need. We thank you, Father. Father. And we pray that we would be so filled, so overwhelmed by the goodness of your grace and the gospel, that that would overflow to others, that others might know the joy of your forgiveness as well. We pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.